Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Hey, if you've got a Bible or a flat screen or a device of some kind, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, that is also fine because the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 16 from verse 25, it says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Well, it is my privilege to be here this morning in this present series. And as we sit in this idea, in this, uh, in this leaning into understanding and experiencing and seeking out God's presence, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16 with a couple of guys named Paul and Silas who are struggling to see God in their circumstances. They are struggling to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as we sit in this present series together, I want to go there because I think the truth is when stuff is going really well, when we have momentum behind us, we can say, yay, God, God is with me. The Holy Spirit is powerful. Everything is awesome. But when stuff is bad, when we're shackled to the floor of life, it's a bit harder to go there. And often instead of saying, how good is God? What comes out of our mouth, what comes from our hearts, what comes from our very being, our very fleshiness is, where on earth is God in this? And that's where we find Paul and Silas in this moment. And to really understand this moment a little bit more, you kind of have to have a look at Acts 16, the whole chapter, which is this kind of full-on adrenaline-filled, like action-packed chapter of the Bible. It's actually one of my favourite chapters in the Bible. And really to understand Acts 16, you have to take yourself back to Acts 15, which is where the story of the Bible tells us the story of the first church meeting, the Council of Jerusalem. That's kind of how the Bible works. You can isolate little verses here and there, but it's better to read it in its whole picture. And so to understand this moment, we need to understand Acts 16. And to understand Acts 16, you've got to understand Acts 15. And Acts 15 is the Council of Jerusalem. If you open any uh, Bible timeline, maybe you've got that in the front of your Bible, you will see the Council of Jerusalem. It was the very first church meeting. What's going on there is that Jesus, in the, in the story of Acts, in the, in the way Luke tells it, Jesus has ascended to heaven, said to 12 ordinary guys on a beach, you guys are the plan, go and take the message of Jesus, the life-changing message of Jesus to the world. And those guys start to do that. All of a sudden, the church has got momentum. The church that Jesus set up with his life-changing message, with his death and resurrection is on the go. And these little churches are popping up all over the Middle East, uh, in people's lounge rooms, in people's kitchens, um, in, in, in sort of parks and at trees and all sorts of different places, these little churches are being set up. And right in the middle of all that momentum from the church, this guy named Paul, who was originally known as Saul, uh, who is the number one persecutor of Christians, the number one hater of the church in the first century, uh, has this incredible encounter with Jesus. He has this incredible life-flipping, switch-flipping moment with Jesus, um, and he puts his faith in 
Christ. He says to Jesus, here I am, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, I want you to take the life-changing message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And Gentiles is just a word that means non-Jews because at this point in history, sort of the Jewish culture was the one that was being hit, um, slapped over the face with the message of Jesus. And, and, and you know, we sort of can sort of underestimate what that means, what it means to send the message of Jesus to the Gentiles because you and I are probably all Gentiles. Um, but in this point in history, that was massive. It was really hard to separate the religious culture that was the Jewish people. And so for Jesus to call this guy named Paul and say, this is what I want you to do, it was massive. He puts his faith in Jesus. He learns a little bit about what the message was and he goes and he takes it into places where they have never heard the message of Jesus before. And he sees great success. He has great momentum behind him. And all of a sudden people are putting their faith in Jesus and towns are turned around and people are flipped. And there's this incredible momentum in the first century of the church being set up. But there's also these Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus, have said Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still really uncomfortable with this Jew-Gentile thing. And really the question for them is, can you actually be saved if you're not Jewish? Because that's sort of the lesson that's sort of been ingrained in them through history and through generations is that you must be Jewish in order to be a Christian. And so they, in their intellectualness, say the best way to be a Christian is to remain Jewish. And the best way to remain Jewish is to get circumcised. And all of a sudden, all these people that Paul has been telling about Jesus, have been putting their faith in Jesus, get this new message that you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And all the men cross their legs and say, no, thank you very much. And so Paul hears about this and says, this just won't do. This is not the message that I've been sent to preach and calls a meeting with some other church leaders. And so we have Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, the very first church meeting. And the topic for discussion, the question on the table is, do you have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus? They have some debate, they have some conversation, and then they decide pretty, un pretty convincingly that no, you do not need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Right? Am I right? Everybody uncrosses their legs, sighs, a breath of relief, and Paul knows in that moment that yes, this is what my new, my next missionary journey will be. Because in that meeting, they decide, no, you don't need to be circumcised to do this. You don't need to be Jewish to do this. This is a new thing. This is a new covenant. This is a new way of following God. And let's make this as easy as possible for people to do. Let's not put religion in the way. Let's not put process in the way. Let's not put sort of ceremony in the way. That is what Jesus came to do. It's a free gift. Let's make this as simple as possible for people to put their faith in. And Paul hears that message and says, I know exactly where I'm going next. I'm going to go preach this message. It's simple. It's a free gift, people, to put your faith in Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And so Paul goes down from Jerusalem to a place called Antioch where the church is flourishing, where the church has heaps of momentum. He picks up a new traveling companion, a guy named Silas. The church placed their hands on Paul and Silas as they head out on their next missionary journey. They send them with prayers of encouragement and affirmation and words of knowledge. And they pray this incredible prayer of sending for them. And Paul and Silas set out on their next missionary journey led by the Spirit. Paul thinks he 
knows where he wants to go, so he heads in that direction, but the Holy Spirit stops him. The Bible doesn't really tell us how that happens, but Paul knows in himself he's been led by the Spirit. He's got all this momentum behind him. He's got all this prayer and celebration and courage behind him. He just knows that's not where he's supposed to go. Along the way, they hear about this young up-and-comer, a guy named Timothy, sort of this young leader that everyone sees great potential in. And they say, Paul, you should go and meet him. So they go and meet Timothy, and Paul says, I think you've got something about you. You should come with me. I want to teach you the ways of leadership. I want to teach you the ways of evangelism. I want to teach you the ways of missionary. And, um, and also, I think you should probably get circumcised, which seems strange because he's just come from a meeting that says he doesn't have to. But Paul says, you know, to get on the same page with the Jewish people, to, to, for you to lead them and to speak to them with credibility. You don't have to, but I think it would be a good idea. So Timothy does that and they move on, but the Holy Spirit stops them from going to the next place. They find themselves in Troas. And for some reason, they have to see a doctor in Troas. Hopefully it's not a botched circumcision. They see a doctor in Troas. How do I know that? Because in verse 12, in verse 12 of Acts chapter 16, Luke, the author of Acts, this is incredible. Luke, the author of Acts, for 15 chapters has been, has been writing the story from other people's perspective. All of his pronouns are they. They did this. They saw this. They went there. They did this. They prayed that. And in verse 12, his pronouns shift to personal pronouns. To pers- All of a sudden, he goes from they, they, they to we did this. We went there. We said that, we prayed that. For some reason, they needed to see a doctor in Troas and Dr. Luke is there and he hears their message and he says, I'm in. And he leaves everything behind and all of a sudden he joins their missionary journey. From this point on, Luke uses personal pronouns to tell the story of the church extending their influence in the world. It's an incredible moment in scripture. Circle it if you've got a Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible. I do it all the time. So now they've got incredible momentum. They've got a team of people. They've got Paul and they've got Silas and they've got Timothy and they've got Luke and they're a team of people. There's momentum behind them. They're praying for one another and they're spurring each other on and they're excited and stuff is happening and they really feel the Spirit leading them in this mission. And then God says to them, I want you to go to this place called Philippi. And Philippi might sound familiar to you if you've been around church or you've opened a Bible before because there's these books in the Bible called Philippians. And that is a, ch- that is a letter that Paul will write to the church in Philippians a bit later on in the story. But they end up in Philippi. It's another thing to circle in your Bible because this is the moment that the message of Jesus reaches Europe for the first time. It's the reason that you and I are sitting here Because Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke will take the life-changing message to Europe for the very first time in Acts chapter 16. It's the only reason that you and I sit in here because the message of Jesus will, will infiltrate the world through this moment. The gospel will be spread further and faster than ever before because they were led by the Spirit to the place called Philippi. They get to Philippi and they go, let's just do what we always do. Well, it's a Sabbath. Let's go to the synagogue. The synagogue will be at least 10 Jewish men. You only need 10 Jewish men, 10 men of faith to actually start a synagogue. Even if you don't have a building, you just need 10 guys who understand God to come together and make a church. So they go, let's go find them. So they enter the centre of town and there is no one there. There are not even 10 people in this town who have faith in God. There's not even enough people to have a church. There's nothing of faith there. And so they go, well, what do we do next? And Paul says, well, let's just walk a little bit further. They walk outside the centre of town, out the gates of the city, and they find a bunch of women sitting on the floor talking. 
And in those women is this one woman who's wearing a lot of purple, her name is Lydia. And Lydia hears the message that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are preaching, jumps on board, puts her faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden the momentum is even crazier because they've got success. They've seen people put their faith in Jesus at this point. You know, it's not just what they're doing now. They're seeing God in action. They're seeing lives change. They're seeing eternities change. They're seeing generational change. And the momentum is incredible. These four guys are right in the thick of the presence of God. You know, every night they have their debrief meeting. You know, if you've been on a short-term mission trip, you have to have a debrief meeting at the end of the night. And they have their debrief meeting. And they're like, how good is God? God is so in this. God is leading us. We hear His voice every day. Things are going so well. We're taking the message to places where they've never heard it. People are getting saved. People are investing in this. People are loving this. Things are going so well. And then all of that screeches to an almighty halt. In verse 16, go there with me. In verse 16, it says this. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So after all this momentum, after everything is going so well, after they can see the face of God in exactly what they're doing, all of that screams to a halt when they're faced with this woman who is possessed by a spirit of fortune-telling, which, which I can't even begin to understand or explain. But Paul knows that there's something not right with this. And it's sort of, you know, he's, she's sort of getting in the way of their mission. She's sort of being sarcastic and she's sort of putting them down and, and telling everyone that, you know, they're sort of a joke and mocking them in what she does. And so Paul gets sick of it and he turns around and he rebukes the spirit that is in her and pff, she's free. And then all of a sudden... The men who have enslaved this woman have been making coin of what she does, see the window of opportunity to get these guys out of their town. You see, they're making waves in Philippi. They're making waves. Stuff is happening. People are changing. People are putting their money in different things. People are putting their belief in different things. All of a sudden, the town is starting to shift. And then when the economy of Philippi is threatened, they see their window. And they pull Paul and Silas before the magistrate. And it says in verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. 
So Paul and Silas have this incredible momentum behind them. Things are looking great for them at the moment. God is in everything. They see the Spirit spurring them on. They've got each other to encourage one another in the mission of God. They're doing something so incredible. It's going to impact the future of the gospel. And all of a sudden, those feet that walked from the Council of Jerusalem with purpose, hopped on a boat to Philippi, the same feet that waded through the waters of Europe for the first time, those feet that walked through Philippi and saw a town changing in the name of Jesus for their, with their very eyes, those same feet are now shackled to the floor in the innermost cell of the prison. What now? All of that momentum, all of the goodness, all of the moments of praising God for his incredible faithfulness, what are they going to do now? They've literally been beaten with rods and are now shackled to the floor of the prison. And that momentum is gone. What now? And then it says this in verse 25, about midnight. And it's actually those words that stop me as I prep this message about midnight. Because it strikes me and you know, Luke's really good at putting detail into the story. But it strikes me that it's really difficult to understand and to find the presence of God when it's really dark. You know, about midnight in the prison, in the centre of the prison, there were no lights. It was literally very, very dark. And I wonder what about midnight looks like for you. It's these words that stop me in my tracks as I pre prepared this message because it's about midnight when it's really hard to find God. You know, when stuff is going well, when we have momentum, when we see people come into faith before our very eyes, when, when things are up, when there's money in the bank account, when family is good, when relationships are restored, when all of those things are happening and there's momentum behind our life, it's really easy to see the presence of God in our lives. But about midnight, when our feet are shackled to the floor of life, it's really hard to see God. It's really hard to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in the darkness. I wonder what about midnight looks like for you. I wonder if, like Paul, there's something that follows you around. You know, when you're at the peak of momentum, when stuff is going so, so well, when you feel so filled with the Holy Spirit that you can rebuke evil spirits out of people, is there something following you around? You know, maybe it's not a person like it was for Paul, but maybe it's an internal voice, a voice that says, you can't do this. Who do you think you are? You don't have the experience. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the gifts. You don't have the talent. You don't have the life that is worthy of this. Is it an inner voice that follows you around at the peak of momentum? Is it a temptation that just keeps coming back right when stuff is going really well? Is it a past transgression that you just can't shake? And it's when you're at the peak 
of momentum, when you're at the peak of your relationship with God, that all of a sudden, that darkness hits. And it's following you around, trying to tear you down, trying to stop the momentum you're experiencing in the name of Jesus. Have you been there? If that wasn't enough to stop the momentum that Paul and Silas are experiencing, to, you know, that wasn't enough to make them feel as though they are lost to God, that God has stopped his mission here and he's gone somewhere else. They're then brought into the center of the town and flogged with rods. They are beaten and bleeding and broken. There's nothing that stops momentum more than a beating. You know, I hope that none of you have been beaten with rods lately, but life has a way of beating us up. Life has a way of keeping us bleeding and broken at times. You know, life has a way of throwing blow after blow. Stuff happens that's that's inexplicable, it's unfair, it's difficult to understand and even grasp, but life has a way of beating us up sometimes. Paul and Silas are on the mission field doing the precious work of God when all of a sudden they are literally being beaten up. They're broken and they're bleeding and they're taken into the center of the prison and shackled to the floor. When stuff is good, it's really easy to say, how good is God? When stuff is fast moving, when you can see the presence of God and everything that you do and everything that you say, it's so easy to say how powerful is the Holy Spirit. But about midnight is when it gets tough. About midnight, in the darkness, when you're beaten, when you're broken, when you're bleeding, when that voice is following you around and you can't shake the soundtrack that says you are nothing, you aren't good enough, there is no way that God is in this. That it's really hard to feel God. It's about midnight that it's hard to experience the presence of God. Have you been there? What's your about midnight? And what's your response? What's your response to midnight? What's your response to God when you can't feel him, when you can't see him, when you are starting to doubt if he is even there? What's your response? Because Paul and Silas's response is so simple and yet so remarkable. This is what they do in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So in the midst of darkness, in the midst of where is God, Paul and Silas pray and they sing hymns. 
They literally step into the presence of God in the midst of darkness by singing praise and worship to God. It's so incredibly simple and yet so remarkable because I think our response in the darkness is to say, God, where are you? Show up. But you see Paul and Silas say, let's step in. Paul and Silas say the best way for us to handle this situation is to remember the faithfulness of God, is to worship His name, is to praise who He is, is to remember how great He is and that He has been with us this whole time. We don't know what hymn they sing, but we do know they do it with no music, with no lyric sheet, with no Google lyrics. But in order to face the darkness, they step toward God by singing praise and worship. They sing so loud the other prisoners can hear. At some point, I'm sure someone says, shut up. And then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. And you know, I think Luke has to grasp at his language here to tell us what happens because this is not a coincidental earthquake that happens in a moment where rock kind of shatters. This is the sort of earthquake that breaks doors down and unlocks chains. I mean, that's not an ordinary earthquake, but I think Luke can't handle the, the, the language here to explain to us what actually happens because this is clearly a powerful move of the Holy Spirit in this moment. It's a powerful move where Paul and Silas take a step toward God and say, we don't know what to do, God, but we know that you are here. And the Spirit steps before them and says, let me break you free. You see, it's in the presence of God that we can see breakthrough. You know, Paul and Silas see it literally in the darkness. They sing praise and worship to God and they experience physical breakthrough. The chains that their feet are in and their hands are in, break free, not just theirs, but the whole prison. The jailer realises what happens. He's having a snooze, probably lulled to sleep by the beautiful hymns that Paul and Silas are singing. He wakes up and he draws his sword immediately as he realises what has happened. Because by Roman law as a jailer, if somebody escapes your prison, you by law have to serve their sentence. So if the whole prison is free, if you've let every prisoner break out, escape, then you have no other choice. Draw out your sword and fall on it. It's death. And so the jailer realises what has happened, wakes up, pulls out his sword and is about to pierce his heart when all of a sudden he hears from the centre of the prison, Paul yelling out, don't do it. We're all still here. Maybe there's a little bit of blood on his chest because the sword has just pierced the skin, but he runs into the centre of the prison where these two weirdos who probably he has joined in the beating of earlier that afternoon. And he says, what's with you guys? Because he sees something unique in them. He sees something special about them. He knows that they are not ordinary men, that there is something powerful that goes with them, that goes before them, that surrounds them. And he says, how do I get what you guys get? And Paul and Silas say, it's easy, bro. It's Jesus. He says, you've got to tell my whole family about this. Come home for breakfast. And they go home for breakfast and Paul and Silas tell his whole family about Jesus. His whole family put their faith and their trust in Jesus and his whole family are saved. We see generational breakthrough in this moment. We see generational eternities change in this moment. And this unit, this family, with the help of Lydia, will become the church in Philippi. They will become the Philippians that Paul writes to years later. The church will flourish in Philippi and grow and influence and become bigger and better than Paul and Silas ever had vision for because of this jailer. 
Why? Because Paul and Silas chose to enter the presence of God through praise and worship. When stuff is dark, it's so hard to find God. We're all guilty of saying, where are you, God? Are you even here? Has something else grabbed your attention? Because right now I am shackled to the floor of life. I'm beaten and I'm bloody and I'm broken. And that soundtrack is playing so loudly in my mind that tells me I can't do anything about it. But it's in the darkness that Paul and Silas choose to take a step into the presence of God. And how do they get there? They do it by praise and worship. They do it by praise and worship. You know, worship, there's a reason why we do it at church. There's a reason why we do it. It's not just to, you know, be impressed by James's skinny jeans every Sunday. It's actually purposeful. You know, worship brings us to a place of surrender. You know, we're kidding ourselves. If Paul and Silas didn't look at each other and say, what do we do now? And Silas said to Paul, well, you're the leader, mate, you do it. And he was like, I don't know what else to do. What we need to do is surrender this entire situation, this entire circumstance to God. And how do they do that? Through worship. It brings us to a place of surrender. God, I am human, but you are God. And I believe that you can do anything in this moment. I believe that you have the power for me to see breakthrough right now. Worship puts our focus back on Him. You know, when we're lost in the darkness, it is so hard to take our eyes off our own circumstances and put them on God. But when we're singing songs of praise and worship about who God is, about what Jesus has done, about how we walk in the freedom and the light of Jesus and His work on the cross, it takes our eyes off the impossible and puts our eyes on a God who makes the impossible possible. And worship, worship is celebrating who God is and what He has done. You know, I, I've been around church for a really long time. I think I was born on a Tuesday and then I was at church on the Sunday. We were that sort of family, you know. And, and I've been around church songs and worship songs for a really long time. And I have a song. I have a song that I sing when I'm facing the darkness. I don't know what that song might be for you. If you've been around church for a long time, maybe you have a song that, that you sing when stuff gets tough. But for, but for me, that song is great as thy faithfulness. You know, I pull it out all the time. When I'm rocking a baby to sleep in the middle of the night, wondering why on earth I ever had children, great is thy faithfulness. When I'm sitting on a plane that is shuddering, watching lightning out my window, great is thy faithfulness. When I'm facing situations that seem impossible, when it looks like I'm trying to you know, push water uphill with a pair of chopsticks, great is thy faithfulness when I'm staring at broken relationships that seem like they are going to tear my entire world down. Great is thy faithfulness. Last year when I sat in a hospital room watching my dad die before my very eyes, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. When it gets dark, great is thy faithfulness. I surrender to him because he is faithful. 
I take my eyes off the impossible and place them on the God who makes the impossible possible. And I remember who God is, who he has been to me. You know, we're we're kidding ourselves if we don't think Paul and Silas had a little conversation about how much God had been with them. You know, remember when the church in Antioch prayed for us, Silas. Remember the prayers that they said. Remember the things that they said. You know, remember when we met Timothy and we just knew God was in this and God was building leaders for his church and his time. Remember when he told us to go to Philippi and we didn't know we were coming here, but look at what God did. We met Lydia day one. She put her faith in Jesus. Do you remember how excited she was, Paul? Do you remember the smile on her face when she realized what Jesus had done for her, Silas? I'm sure they had those conversations where they flagged the moments of faithfulness that God had shown them to remember that in the darkness, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Would you stand with me? It's worth noting that Paul and Silas, they, they, didn't, they didn't have lyrics. They didn't have music behind them. You know, Psalm 100 uh, says this. It's a little psalm. It's one of the best, definitely in the top 150. Psalm 100, five verses, says this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pastures. Enter his gates, that is his presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Great is thy faithfulness. When you are facing the darkness and you can't grasp anything, you can't grasp any story, that no story comes to your mind that reminds you of how faithful God is. Great is thy faithfulness. When you have no idea how you are ever going to get out of the prison that life has locked you in, great is thy faithfulness. When that soundtrack is playing in the back of your mind over and over again, telling you, you are nothing, you aren't worthy, there's no way, great is thy faithfulness. You know, I have a real sense this morning that together is the church. God wants us to know and remember his faithfulness. And he wants us to to step in to his presence by praise and worship. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.